The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, grab your Bibles. We got to hustle now. And turn, if you would, to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. When I said earlier that we were going to be spending some time here uh, talking about Calvinism and Arminianism and all that, I was not joking. Um, That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high. We'll make sure that you get one. I'm sorry, I forgot that. I probably caught some guys off guard just now. But if you need one, just stick a hand up. We'll make sure you get one. If not, use your app, your phone, whatever you got. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse, well, let's just start in verse 1. We're going to be um, looking at today verses uh, 1 through 5, but primarily verses 3 through 5. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for Bucky and what he shared, what the Lord's doing through their ministry. And I pray, God, you would continue to use him to spread the gospel, to um, to reach people around them and to alleviate suffering overseas. And Lord, now as we open up your word, we pray that your spirit would just move amongst this place, that you would be our teacher, our guide, and our comforter. And as always, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my king, my rock, and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, gang, we're just now really getting going in our study in the book of Ephesians. Last week, we did sort of an introduction to the book of Ephesians. We didn't get very far. We, we read Paul's greeting, basically, and went from there. Um, this week, we're going to go just a tiny bit further um, as we begin this series. Last week, if you remember, we talked about the fact that the Apostle Paul, who was formerly a murderer and persecutor of Christians, is the one that God takes down, saves, changes, inspires, and uses to write this book. And this book was really a letter originally written to the churches in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was a church that Paul himself had planted. And it was about five years or so previous that Paul had been there and taught and established this church. And now Paul is actually in prison in Rome. And he's writing this letter to the church. It's one of the few letters here where there's not a real issue that Paul's dealing with. There wasn't like a specific danger or crime or sin or something like that that Paul's addressing. Um, In fact, some people believe it to be sort of a circular letter. One that Paul wrote in general to be passed around lots of different churches. Um, But it just addresses who we are in Christ and then what we look like, what it should look like for the church to live out its identity as those of us who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so last week, we just spent some time talking about that idea, the idea of what we might find our identity in, how when we put our identity in people or careers or money or things or hobbies or any of those things, how those things ultimately will set us aside, they they will let us down because our identity is to be in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We were created originally to find everything in him. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that today, um, but we're also going to be talking a little bit about our identity as a church. And that's why I believe it's, it's important and worth setting some time aside to talk about the issue that we're going to talk about today. For some of you, you may not know that this is an issue. And if you don't know that this is an issue, I implore you, go to sleep now. You are happier not even knowing, I assure you. Um, But for those of you that are aware that this is an issue, this is a debate within the church, this is a good opportunity for us. We we dealt with it when we were in our series in Romans, going through Romans 9, 10, and 11, kind of the epicenter for this issue. Um, But that was over three years ago. And we've had a lot of change, a lot of new faces, a lot of growth since then. So I want to take opportunity to look at that today, to understand who our identity is. And then at the end, I'm going to have one point. This is a one-point sermon with a little bit of history behind it that I want to implore and urge us, the Body of Heritage Christian Fellowship, to consider. So that's what we're going to do. So let's dive right in. Verse 3 is where we'll start our focus today. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It again says, with every spiritual blessing. How many blessings? Every, how many blessings? Every spiritual blessing. What does that mean? It sounds good. It sounds like he's given us something and he's given us a lot of it. What does that mean? Well, to bless now and to bless then kind of mean two different things. We, we look at them a little bit differently. Um, today, we might look at blessing as more of a sentimental thing, well-wishing. Like you look at someone, the little baby we had up here for the baby dedication. You go, oh, bless his heart. Everybody say, oh, that's kind of what blessing tends to be in a lot of ways. We wish someone well. Blessing then meant something completely different. Um, Actually, the idea of blessing in the biblical writings is much closer to the Hebrew concept of shalom. Shalom literally means your every joy, your every fulfillment, everything that your soul needs and longs for, to have harmony with God, harmony with one another, harmony with God's creation, to have a complete and total sense of joy, harmony, purpose, fulfillment, and happiness. In other words, if you go back to Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3, which we talked about last week, it's the idea of shalom is what we were designed for, to live in peace and harmony with God. And so when the Bible talks about blessings, it's talking about everything that your heart needs to have that full shalom existence with God and with others. And here the scriptures say, everything has been given you in Christ. In Christ. Listen, when you become a Christian, Christianity is much more than now you have a Lord that you follow, though it is absolutely that. Amen? Christianity is much more than having a savior that has saved you from your sin and folly, though it is absolutely that, amen? Christianity is even much more than Jesus becoming our example to follow in how we live out our lives from here on out, though it absolutely is that as well. 
When you become a Christian, you are now, the Bible says, in Christ. In other words, everything that is Christ is yours. You now have been, the Bible tells us, robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ has become your covering so that when God looks at you and deals with you, he deals with you as he does his own son, Jesus. We become joint heirs with Christ. Everything he has is ours. His inheritance is ours. His righteousness is ours. His blessings are ours. He, we are co-heirs with him and citizens of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus Christ. It's so much more than some group of uber-holy people who are saved. It is an identity. It is a change in who you are, where you are going, and how God deals with you. And it's not a process. You're either saved or not. You're either in Christ or you are not. And when you are in Christ, it says, past tense, he has, past tense, given you every spiritual blessing. It's as if like when you're poor, if you're poor and get married to someone who's really wealthy, it's my prayer for my daughters. If you're poor, you marry someone who's really wealthy, the moment you get married, you're no longer poor. Everything that is his is yours. Everything that is hers is yours. Unless you signed a prenup, repent, get rid of that thing. That's what marriage is for, right? And so even in the scriptures, it talks about the fact that, that we are not joint, just joint heirs with Christ, but it describes Christ as the groom and his church as, the, or excuse me, Christ as the bride and his church, is, no, I got it backwards. Christ is the groom, the church is the bride of Christ. And so there's this idea that when we become union with Jesus, when he becomes our savior, when our faith is put in him, everything that is his is yours. And so God says, every spiritual blessing, everything you need to have a full, fulfilled harmony with God, joy, everything your soul is really longing for, you have, past tense, already been given all of those things in Jesus Christ. And so that sounds pretty good, amen? So what are those things? Well, Paul writes, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And then this is going to take off, I alluded to this last week, in the greatest and the worst sentence in the entire Bible. From verse 3 to verse 14, though our English translations have broken it up and put commas and periods and, and we've put numbers in to break the verses up and all that, and that's fine. That helps us understand, helps us to study it. But in the original language, this is one sentence. It is the longest um, if you're an English teacher in here, this will drive you crazy looking at a sentence like this. You would fail a kid for writing a paper like this. And so why does Paul do it? Look what he writes. Blessed be our Father, our God and our Father, Lord Jesus, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we inquire possession of it to the praise of his glory period it's one sentence that's obnoxious is it not well here's what Paul's doing Paul opens up his letter to the people of Ephesus, after he says his little hello, his greeting, he is opening up his letter to the Galatians in worship. Paul's gushing. You ever, you ever gone to like a restaurant and you had the best meal you ever had and the service was amazing, the food was amazing, the environment was amazing and, and then someone asks you, hey, how was that restaurant and you just gush? You're like, oh, it was amazing. It was the best food. It was the greatest salad. What kind of food did they have? They had hamburgers. They had wings. They had pizza. It was amazing. They had everything. Now, when you're doing that, your purpose is not to, I am now going to give you a detailed step-by-step list of everything that they have. You don't do that. You just start mentioning this and this and this and this, and it was incredible because you were just gushing. The idea is you're trying to get across to the person the amazement, the delight, and the wonder that you experienced in that place. that's what Paul's doing. Paul says here, you have been given every spiritual blessing. And then his purpose is not to give a detailed list of each one of those spiritual blessings. In fact, it's an incomplete list. What Paul is doing is gushing in praise to God who has been so incredibly gracious. He's saying God has given us everything. He has chosen us. He has adopted us. He has redeemed us in verse 7. He's forgiven us, verse 7. Included us in his plan, verse 9 and 10. He's given us an assured heritage and inheritance in verse 11 and 14. He's given us the gift of his spirit, verses 13 through 14. What Paul is doing right now is just gushing in praise and worship about who God is and what God has done for us. And he's just rambling in passion for Jesus. So in that sense, it's a great sentence. If you're an English teacher, problematic, but it's a great sentence. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, though it is not in complete detail, these are the blessings, there are no more. We are going to take some time because these are some of the most amazing, deepest theological truths. We could spend weeks on these things, but we're going to take some time to really look at some of the things that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul specifically to mention. And today we're going to look at mainly two, mostly one, but we're going to look at the idea that these verses we looked at, verses three through five, point out that we have been chosen before the foundations of the world to be adopted is the second one. Now, now I'm not going to spend a ton of time on adoption because we just finished the book of Galatians and the, the Mount Everest of texts about adoption is at the end of Galatians 3 and the beginning of Galatians 4. We were just there a few weeks ago. I would strongly encourage you to go back and, and hear that on our website if you haven't done that. It is such an important text. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on that, um, but we are going to talk about the idea that you have been chosen 
and predestined before the foundations of the world. It's what the text says. Now, I am a follower of Christ. And what Paul is saying here is that you, the church, who he's writing to, not just in Ephesus, who's the church? Come on, you can say we are. Who's the church? We are. We are the church. So Paul's writing to you too. You, the church, who are followers of Jesus Christ, you have been chosen by God. You are not the church because you chose Jesus. You are the church because Jesus chose you. That's the 30, not even 30, that's the 10 second summary of what Paul says here when he says you have been chosen before the foundations of the world. Now, as amazing as that should sound, in our day and age especially, but really throughout the history of most of Christianity, that truth, as wonderful it is, as it is, has been clouded in controversy, fear, doubt, anger, war, fights, and division. And what we want to do today is talk about this truth. I'm going to give you some of the history behind it and who our church's identity is with regards to this. And my desire is that we would get beyond all of that junk and come back to what Paul's original purpose is as he writes these things, and that is worship. That's our goal. We'll see if we get there. Now, when we were in Romans 9, 10, and 11, three and a half years ago, whatever it was, we dealt with this. And, and I told you guys, I grew up in North Carolina in a Southern Baptist church, part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And in the Southern Baptist Convention, there are those who believe in predestination with regards to salvation and what I'm going to define in a minute is Calvinism. And there are others who believe in free will and man's free will to choose that you're not predestined, referred to as Arminianism. There's a debate that's been going on for hundreds of years that between these two camps, but in the Southern Baptist Convention, it's one of the rare denominations that you'll ever see that has both elements living within it, usually in harmony, not always, usually. And so when I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and I'd been there really into my 20s, I, I, I never realized the level of debate that existed and really the animosity that exists between these two camps. Um, it wasn't until probably in my late 20s, early 30s, when I was here on the West Coast and I was part of um, the Calvary Chapel movement and we, we took a class with uh, Mark Anderson, who's the pastor at Ashland Christian Fellowship. A lot of you guys know Pastor Mark, great friend, pastors down here in Ashland, Oregon. Um, at that time, I was an engineer, but the Lord had really put it on my heart that I was gonna be a pastor and I didn't know when that was gonna play out, but I felt, I, I believe God, so I should prepare for it. And I found out they were doing some classes on Thursday nights, um, some school of ministry classes, Bible study and theology and things. And so I signed up for these classes and every Thursday night, I would go all the way down there to Ashland and I would spend time studying with him. And while we were there, we studied and read this one book. It's referred to as The Five Points of Calvinism Weighed and Found Wanting by George Bryson. I'm holding this up by example, no one buy this book. Okay, I'm just holding it up by example. This is one of the books that we looked at and studied through the writings of people dealing with the issue of Calvinism and Arminianism. So we're studying this, we're going through these things, and I started realizing, man, there's all these people that are really arguing about all this stuff. And, and I remember Pastor Mark said something specific with regards to Romans 9, which is, like I said, the epicenter of this argument. He said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have to go to the Lord and just say, why did you put this chapter in the Bible? I don't understand. And I remember thinking, that is a weird thing for a pastor to say. Like, I, I, I don't understand. And I don't mean that to his discredit because after I studied it, I understand why he said it. But at that time, I was like, 
there, there's, there's a big thing going on here. And as I looked into this and as we studied these things, we started to learn about the debate behind it. Because the debate is essentially this. There are people on one camp who believe that God chooses who he saves. He picked you and he picked you and he picked you. And in that process, by default, other people are not being chosen. And if God doesn't choose you, you have no hope for ever being saved. Therefore, I'm choosing you to go to heaven and I'm choosing you by default to go to hell. And it's all up to God. And, the, and other people on the other side would say that makes God look wicked. How could God be fair if he's doing something like that? No, what happens is, is God looks through the annals of time and sees those who would choose him and he picks them in response to that. And there's this constant pendulum swing and as you're gonna see in just a moment, there are variations of those beliefs. It's a massive spectrum. And this is a debate that has been going on for a long time and the real core of it is referred to, I'm gonna give you some theological words here, monergism and synergism. Monergism believes that salvation, the way God saves people, is it's referred to as a single-handed approach. Man is in his sin, he has no hope to be saved, and God, one hand, comes, reaches down, and plucks people out of hell and sets them into heaven, and man has no responsibility, no, uh, there's no action, there's nothing men do, it, it, they have no part in salvation, it's, it's a one single-handed approach, God saves Synergism is a two-handed approach. It means that man reaches up to God for salvation and God reaches down to man. So there is a cooperation between the two of them. And debates over that topic have raged for a really long time. Really, the, the, the earliest that I can find and that a lot of historians point to is around 400 years after the death of Jesus Christ. Um, first of all, there were a couple of men named Origen and Chrysostom. These men um, both were proponents of single-handed salvation. I mean, excuse me, two-handed salvation. In other words, they believe that man reaches to God, God reaches to man, and this is how it is. And the way they said it worked is that God, because he stands outside the corridor of time, can look through history and see, that guy's gonna choose me, that guy's gonna choose me, she's gonna choose me, she's gonna choose me, therefore, I choose them. And there's this partnership between the will of man and the will of God that leads to their salvation. Well, then after him, after those guys came a guy named Pelagius. Pelagius had a different thought altogether. He decided, no, 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 listen. First of all, Adam never passed a sin nature on to anyone anyway. Men are born with a clean slate, and we have the ability to either choose God or to choose sin, and it's just one or the other. That's what they believe. Now, Pelagius, really the father of a belief system that's called Pelagianism now, was rightfully labeled and arrested and imprisoned as a heretic for these beliefs. I mean, the scriptures say in Romans 3, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. See, listen to how clear the Bible is on this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Over and over, I, you seem to get the idea that maybe nobody's good in that text. Seems to come through, amen? So Pelagian, who was labeled a heretic for teaching that men are inherently good and have the ability to choose good and evil and to live a righteous life apart from their sin nature, he was labeled a heretic, he was kicked aside, and then Augustine comes in. Some of you guys know him as St. Augustine, does that sound familiar? It's Augustine. 
So Augustine came in and had a massive influence on Christianity, a absolutely massive influence. You can't overstate his impact on Christianity. He started out with that same two-handed position, that there's a partnership between the will of man and the will of God that leads to salvation. But he eventually, through study of scripture, changed his position and moved towards what would be referred to as a more reformed theology position, that it is God who acts and saves man. He made that shift. It was a huge influence in Christianity, as his writings are, and that was referred to as single predestination, that God chooses who would be predestined to be in heaven with him. Well, sometime later, 9th century Saxon monk Gottschalk comes around. You guys know him well. I'm sure you have his posters on your wall. Um, He added to that position and took it to another step. That if God chooses who he's going to save, then that means that God also chooses who he's going to damn. And this is referred to as double predestination. That God takes some and chooses, I'm going to choose you to be with me in eternity forever. And I'm going to choose you to literally go to hell. And in going to hell, you will be an example of my wrath towards sin and my justice as you spend an eternity apart from me in hell. That's referred to as double predestination. It is, in my opinion, a gross overemphasis of, um, of the sovereignty of God and a gross underemphasis of man's responsibility and how, how man's will works in conjunction with the Lord. He also eventually was um, imprisoned as a heretic because he even went further and said, therefore, if God is that much in control of everything, then that means God is the author of sin. God created sin. God causes man to sin. Then God punishes sin. He was rightly labeled a heretic as well and went to prison for that. He died without ever recanting on that. Bummer. Then John Calvin comes along. Everybody heard that name before, right? John Calvin is still referred to as this day as maybe the greatest Bible teacher in the history of Bible teachers. His, um, uh, the, the John Calvin commentary series is amazingly good. He was an incredible Bible teacher. He was heavily influenced by Augustine. Um, and he, was, uh, he and Martin Luther are the ones who are considered the fathers of the Reformation, which broke the Protestant movement away from the Catholic Church. He was a believer in single-handed salvation and double predestination. He was such a proponent of it that that belief system came to be known as Calvinism, something that would have driven him crazy. He would never have wanted that attention on himself, but that's what it became referred to as this day, Calvinism, was that belief system. So that was him in the 1500s, but around the same time, someone who was very close to him, actually, there's another guy named Jacob Arminius that comes along. And Jacob Arminius was a disciple, really, of that same teaching, that same belief system, but over time began to change his theology. Um, That's actually referred to as soteriology. It's the way God saves is what that is. He began to change his philosophy on that, and he went sort of back to the old origin view that God looks through the annals of time, sees those that would choose God, and then in response, chooses them. And it puts the influence, or or at least the initiation, if you will, of salvation on the will of the man. And God sees that person's will and responds by saving them. And and so he began this new sort of teaching and this, this real battle erupted between those two camps. 
And in response to that camp, the Arminians, Jacob Arminius was his name, and so those who believed in the free will of man, those opposed to Calvinism became known as the Arminians. And a group of Arminians, mainly Dutch reform or Dutch Protestants, got together in 1610, and it was known as the Remonstrants. And they got together and tried to compose sort of a writing, a statement of their beliefs because of the beliefs of Calvinism that were so prevalent at that time. And they wrote something that uh, put together a paper that was referred to as the five points of Arminianism. They were seeking to define these are the things that we believe. If you'd put that slide up for me. They put together the five points of Arminianism and just really quickly and probably not doing this any justice at all. These are the five points that they came up with. Number one, they came up with they believe in free will. That man has the ability to choose God or not choose God. It is up to man. Number two, conditional election. That salvation is conditional on our choosing God. Number three, universal atonement. That when Christ died on the cross, he died for the sins of every single person, whether they choose God or not. Number four, resistible grace. And that's the belief that God could desire that you be saved and yet you could refute and refuse the will of God. And then number five, the perseverance of some saints. And what that means is, if you put your faith in Jesus and you're saved, now the perseverance of you as a saint is dependent on the fact that you continue to choose God. That you can then lose your salvation or walk away from your faith or, or sin in such a way that you lose the ability to, to be, if you will, a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, so they put this out there, the five points of Arminianism. And that's a really, some of you, if you're theologians in here, you're probably hating the way I just described all those things. It's Sunday morning, not seminary, get over it. So this is where we are. And so they put out the five points of Arminianism. Well, not to be outdone, there's a battle going on, so it's like bloggers today. You know there's a response coming, right? And so in 1618 and 1619, the Synod of Dort is composed and a group of Calvinists come together at that Synod and they put together what is really well known today. The five points of Arminianism in most places is even forgotten. A lot of people don't even realize that this was a response to that. But they put together the five points of Calvinism. The five points of Calvinism also referred to as TULIP and they are this. Number one, total depravity. That we are all sinners by nature and choice, and we cannot choose good. Number two, unconditional election. That God chooses who will be saved without condition. It does not depend on man's work or will to choose. Everyone has already chosen sin. God chooses who will be saved. Number three, limited atonement. That Jesus died only for the elect, not for those who did not choose him. Number four is irresistible grace. If God wants to save you, you can fight all you want. He's going to win. That you cannot refute God's will in salvation. And then number five is the perseverance of all saints. They would say, if your salvation didn't have anything to do with you in the first place, then what makes you think you can ruin God's plans for you in your life? So no, you cannot lose your salvation. And these are the five points of Calvinism. Now, those two camps have been debating for a long time. Let me, let me give you a little bit of a framework so, so that you can understand maybe who some of the people are in these two different camps. Um, Arminians, for example. Um, the Methodist Church, that's the Arminian camp. Um, the Nazarenes are Arminians. Foursquare, Assemblies of God churches, 
Um, H.A. Ironside, some of you guys have heard of him, old theologian. Uh, Warren Wearsby is considered an um, Arminian. Um, uh, most Calvary chapels, um, the, the, a large number of the Calvary chapel churches are Arminian, though there is a shift that's happening within the Calvary chapel that's causing a lot of debate within them as well. Um, and you've got guys like Greg Laurie, which I'll talk about in just a second, and others that are confusing a whole lot of people. But that tends to be um, the Arminian side of things. So what about the other side, the reform side of things? Who are the people around us or names we'd be familiar with that would be part of the reform movement? Um, that would be the Presbyterians, our largely reformed uh, network of churches or denomination, Reformed Baptists, um, Charles Spurgeon, ever heard of that guy? Some of you may have. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, um, Jonathan Edwards. Here's a few, they're, they're really into Johns for some reason, the reforms. So you got Jonathan Edwards, John MacArthur, John Piper, um, J.I. Packer, some of the names that you might be more familiar with um, today, or, or other guys, Matt Chandler, um, some of those guys. So that, that is the, the more reform end of things. And those are kind of the two camps. I, hopefully that gives you some sort of identity about some of the people on each side that we're talking to. But here, here's the problem. Trying to lump all of these different people across the spectrum of evangelical Christianity into one of those two camps is really problematic and I don't think very helpful or fair. For example, you got a guy like Billy Graham. I mean, Billy Graham, he looks really Armenian. He's going and doing these big crusades. He's inviting people to do altar calls, preaching the gospel to anybody that he can. It's very Armenian looking, but then he believed that you can't lose your salvation, which is very Calvinistic in nature. Guys like Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley is an Arminian, but also wrote a great book about eternal security, that you can't lose your salvation. That sounds very, um, very uh, um, um, what's the word, uh, Calvinistic in nature too. You've also guys like, I mentioned before, Greg Laurie, um, maybe the most famous preacher out there now in the Calvary Chapel movement, um, which is largely considered Arminian, and he does the Harvest Crusades, which looks very Arminian, but then at the same time, he's preaching all the time at um, pastor's conferences and things that are dominated by people in the reform movement, like the resurgence, and, and, and hanging out a lot with those guys in those camps, and has a really strong belief with regards to the elect and predestination as well. In fact, he had this famous line, people asked him, he said, I believe in the elect and I believe in the predestination, so I believe God's going to save the elect and I pray he'll keep electing some more. That's kind of his line. And, and he's even causing problems within the Calvary Chapel movement because he's moved so far towards that that it's freaked a lot of old school, we're not anywhere near reformed theology, guys like the dude that wrote this book, freaking those guys out big time. And then you have Charles Spurgeon, for example. I mean, he's dead, so he's not doing a whole lot intentionally right now. But, but Charles Spurgeon is a guy who is absolutely reformed theology to the core, but is quoted left and right by people on both sides of that spectrum all the time. And rightfully so. Man, that guy is quotable. So to say, we're going to lump everybody into one of these two categories, and we love to do that, don't we? We want to just categorize. Are you... Um, I don't know, Red Sox or Yankee? Are you, um, are, are you Republican or Democrat? Are you, you know, we want everybody in just these two camps because it helps us process and we want clear lanes and life just doesn't tend to work out that way in a lot of areas and this is one for sure that shouldn't. It's a huge spectrum with people all over the place in there and yes, there are some people on the lunatic fringe on both sides. You, you guys know how family works, right? All of you guys have like a crazy uncle or a crazy aunt that you just go, oh my gosh, all the time, don't you? 
The one that you don't want to bring people over if they're there because you don't want them to associate you with that. And if you're going, I don't have that in my family, I have bad news for you. It's you. (laughs) All right? If you're wondering why you don't get invited over all the time, sometimes the truth hurts. And and so here's what ends up happening. You can get guys, for example, on the hyper-Calvinistic end of things that say, hey, God chooses who he's going to save, and we shouldn't even preach the gospel to people unless we know for sure, because God forbid we preach the gospel to someone who's not supposed to be part of the elect. That's just dumb. It's just dumb. But you literally have people on that far end of things that will not share the gospel with other people because they believe God will save people. I don't have to do anything, regardless of what the Bible actually says about sharing the gospel. But then you have guys on the other end too, on the Arminian end that are like so against the sovereignty of God that they would paint a picture of a God that has no clue what man's going to choose, has no power whatsoever in the affairs of men, and who reads passages like where the Bible says that God directs the hearts of kings like water and all of those things. They would look at that and go, no, that doesn't, God doesn't even know. And so you end up with, with ends that are heretical even on the end that says God has no control in the affairs of men and is not sovereign at all. And both of those, I would say, totally lunatic fringe on each side. But what ends up happening is most of the time we take the crazy uncle and that becomes the caricature for everyone on that side of the family. And it's not fair, it's not true, and it's not helpful to to take anyone in the reform camp and say they are defined by and then grab some hyper-Calvinistic guy that doesn't believe in preaching the gospel is a, a, a totally unfair thing to do to a guy, for example, like John Piper, who is desperately passionate about missions and preaching the gospel all over the world. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone on the earth today that is more passionate about spreading the gospel over the world than John Piper. So that's not fair to him to do that. And in the same way, to take everyone in an Arminian camp and say they don't believe in God's sovereignty whatsoever is equally unfair. So it's a huge spectrum. And people have been fighting over these things forever. And within Christianity, it's amazing. Barna Group did a study to try to determine what are the percentages of churches in evangelical Christianity today with regards to this issue. How do they break down? And the numbers are very telling. 32% of all churches in evangelical Christianity today would refer to themselves as proponents of Reformed theology, Calvinism. 31% of churches in evangelical Christianity today would refer to themselves as Arminian. And then 37% of the churches have no clue what they are. (laughs) Or, Or don't claim one, let's say. And so you can see there's this broad spectrum. Now, I have some questions for us. Let's talk about heritage for just a minute. We've been talking about Ephesians and about our identity. What is our identity? How do we fall on these things? And and let me ask you this. This issue has been debated. I mean, did you hear the names that I was mentioning in there? Spurgeon, Wearsby, these kind of guys. These kind of men, these caliber of men have been studying and debating this issue for hundreds and hundreds of years. So what are the odds that this guy and this church in this gym in Medford, Oregon figured it out? (laughs) Right? What kind of people would we be 
If we were to take, I mean, how arrogant of a stance would it be for us to look down through the annals of time, the godly men and the incredibly brilliant scholars that have debated these things for so long to look down that and say, that guy is wrong. He's a, we, we, sh- we shouldn't even read his books anymore because he's so wrong and to be so arrogant in our position. Let me explain to you something. Here's, here's what I believe firmly. In the book of Romans, and by the way, guys, I blew all the way past that Romans 9 quote. Don't even worry about it anymore. We'll just skip it. But um, in the book of Romans, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that is the epicenter for the debate regarding Calvinism and Arminianism. That is the passage where the Bible says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Is God just that he did this? And there's this whole doctrine that goes on for three full chapters in the book of Romans about how God elects and about how all these things work out. And Paul, the same writer who writes Ephesians, is working through all these things. And when he comes to the end of chapter 11, the end of this incredible and deep. I mean, we still study these writings like crazy. They're so deep and so rich. But the conclusion he comes to is this in Romans 11. Will you put this slide up for me? His conclusion, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is what he's saying. He writes all this stuff down and he's he's doing Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, election, predestination. Is God just? He works through all this stuff. And the conclusion he comes to in that section of writings is who can possibly trace out all of God's ways? This is bigger than me. To be able to understand how God does this with absolute definitive clarity that ignores any possibility of mystery with this anywhere else, to claim that we've figured out every bit of it and to look down our nose at others that would disagree on this, how can we possibly do this? And so what is the stance? We got some new people here. I haven't been here since we did Romans 9. I've even heard rumors that we are the Reformed church in town before. And then I've got Reformed brothers of mine that are like, I can't believe you still invite people to meet Jesus. So how, how does that work out? What is the heritage stance? Here's the heritage stance. I believe that it is a sloppy way to do theology, to start out with a man-made Uh, camp like five points of Calvinism and to then say, I will take every passage in the scriptures and filter them through that and make sure that my interpretation of scripture always fits these five points. I think that's a backwards way to study the scriptures. And the same would go for the other. Because what it ends up doing, it's referred to as isogesis. What you end up doing is you're taking what you want the scriptures to say and inserting that into the Bible so that when you preach, it always comes out that you're backing and supporting and promoting the theological system that you have subscribed to. And I believe if that's the approach that you take with scripture in everything that you do, I believe you are now trying to lord over the text instead of allowing God's word to lord over you. And what ends up happening is people get to passages like Romans 9. And they get to passages that talk about elect and predestination and those things. And because you have prescribed, let's say, to a theological system that doesn't believe in predestination, the first thing you do when you come to those texts is feel like you have to try to explain that thing away. I don't think that's right. Or vice versa. 
If you're a Calvinist that believe God saves the elect, man has no choice, then when you come to scriptures that talk about the Lord inviting you, come, I'm pleading with you, come, I want the world to be saved, you have to find ways to explain what it really means is, and you have to start explaining things away. So what's what's the position of Heritage Christian Fellowship with regards to that? Here's what I'll tell you. Number one, our goal is to be biblicists, not Calvinists, not Arminians, and to be okay with the fact that there are tensions in Scripture. So, when we come to passages about predestination and election, we preach those as the glorious and brilliant truths that they are. And when we come to texts that say, come to Jesus and tell us to go invite people to Jesus and talk about man responding to the call of God, we preach those and we say, you need to respond. And you go, well, how do those two work? Is, is man in control or is God in control? God is in control. Man needs to respond. If you need to figure out the tension there, go do it. Don't fight about it in here. We believe the scripture and we don't believe we have to figure every single thing out. Because you're arguing over the writings of Paul who he himself said, I can't figure all this out. So how are we going to do that? So here's what that means. Man, I've had people say, you, you quoted John Piper this weekend. You know he's a Calvinist, right? Yeah, and he's the best preacher of our generation by far. You don't think we can't learn from that guy? Oh, my goodness. But you know who else we'll quote? We'll look at Andy Stanley. We'll look at Warren Wearsby. We'll look at the people on the other side of that camp as well. And what we will understand is that the family of God is broad and diverse that the depths of the mystery of God are deep and we cannot possibly probe all of them in our day and age. We will study and do the best we can. I'm not saying you get sloppy about these things and go, we don't care, but we will not divide over them here. And so in this church, we have people that are Calvinist to the core. Some of you right now are going, I can't believe you're still saying this, Jeff. I thought you'd come around by now. And then on the other end, we have people here that can't stand the thought of Calvinism, and even my talking about this right now might make you nervous, because frankly, that's the camp that has really dominated Southern Oregon in most recent years. And so so we have both. Our church pastoral staff is split down the middle, Calvinists and Arminian. But I also, I go to Western Seminary where the head of the theology department is Gary Brashears, absolutely not a Calvinist, but his number two in command is Todd Miles, who totally is. And what we have and what we desire is the ability to come to one another, to say, come, let's reason together, to maybe even debate over some of these things in a God-honoring way, but not dividing over something that we have no business dividing over. We will not get caught up in calling names and saying those people are ignorant. They don't know what they're doing and separating ourselves from people in the body of Christ who have brilliant things to contribute and who we can be blessed by. Amen? That's the stance of Heritage Christian Fellowship. So we're not afraid to study a Calvinist and we're not afraid to study an Arminian. We will teach the scripture in front of us the way that the scripture in front of us deserves to be taught and we will not try to explain things away. And if you feel like, Jeff, that sounded really Calvinistic, what you taught today and what you taught last week sounded really Arminian. What's what's with that? We are okay with that tension because we believe God is bigger than us. God's ways are beyond finding out and that God is still growing. And there are things I taught early on in our history here at Heritage that I have taken off of our website 
So um, there's no way we're going to stand up here like fools and try to paint ourselves into a corner, point fingers at everyone else. We will not be that kind of arrogant church. We want to be humble, faithful to God's word. We will study to show ourselves approved. Amen? But we're not going to know everything. That's where faith comes in, right? We walk by faith, not by sight. We, the Bible specifically says, don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So what is heritage? We're just following Jesus to the best of our ability. And we're tripping sometimes, we're stumbling sometimes, and we might cross the finish line with bruised and bloody knees, but we will cross that finish line being as faithful as we possibly can and we will be quick to repent when we fail. That's heritage. And so with that in mind, think about this. Paul writes here in Ephesians, guys, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You've been chosen. Like he's worshiping, he's gushing. Like, guys, do you get it? He chose you. And some people's response to that is, well, hold on now. Can't mean that. We have to explain that away. Are you crazy? The creator of heaven and earth looked down through the annals of time and saw a punk kid named Jeff Hensley who can't possibly get his own act together, who is constantly tripping over his own feet, who is a mess from the beginning, and he looked at him and said, I'll pick that guy. That one that people are making fun of, or that one that blew it over there, that one that thinks he's something when he's not, that poor little dude, I choose him. And I choose you, and I choose you, and I choose you. Listen, the response to that understanding should be worship. He chose you. When, when he says that I chose you before the foundations of what it doesn't mean in general, like I just chose those who follow Jesus and then whoever follows I'm just sort of stuck with. He's using personal language. I chose you. I chose you. I chose you. The God of heaven and earth chose you. How can that not bring incredible joy to your heart to understand that? Do you remember what it's like to not be chosen? I, I've read this before, but I have to, to do it again. Garrison Keillor on, uh, wrote about this, and he, he, he talks about being picked last for Little League. Can, let's see how humble everybody is. Anybody ever been picked last for kickball or Little League before? Raise your hands up. Well, this is, this is going to hurt a little when I read this, okay? This is what he says. They chose the popular ones first, and now the choice is hard because we're all pretty much the same, not so hot. And then we're down to those last grudging choices. A slow kid for catcher and someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it. They chose the last ones two at a time. All right, you and you, because it makes no difference really. And the remaining kids, the scrubs, the excess, they deal for like their handicaps. All right, I'll take him, but you got to take him. Sometimes I go as high as sixth, usually lower. But just once, I'd like the captain to pick me first. To say, him, I want him. The skinny kid with glasses and black socks. You, come on. But I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. Guys, that describes most people's view of their experience with God and Christianity. I'm on the team, but God likes the others better. I mean, 
he said, if you follow Jesus, you're on the team. And I followed Jesus, but, but he was really after them. Jeff, of course he picked you. You're a pastor. Let me tell you something, guys. God didn't choose me because I'm a pastor. I became a pastor because God chose me. It was an understanding of God's love for me that at a certain point in my life, I realized I can't do anything else. I can't do engineering anymore. I gotta do something with this. And so for you, if that's, that's a lot of people's experience, God has, I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. And that's where God would say, you need to look to the cross. When you understand what Jesus went through that I can choose you, you have been chosen with great enthusiasm. You have been chosen in a way that no one has been chosen before in the history of the world. God picked you. And you go, but I can't be excited about that. Why? It's that double predestination thing, man. If I believe that God chose me, then that believes, what about my neighbor? What if he didn't pick him because he's not saved? I have good news for you. God chose you to go get him. That's the truth. Doesn't the Bible say, love your who as yourself? Your neighbor. And so to look at this truth and go, man, I, I can't celebrate the fact that I've been chosen because it means now I believe that that person hasn't been. You've been chosen, and now you've been chosen to spread that same grace and gospel with your next door neighbor. So if this is scary to you, get to work. Tell your neighbor about Jesus. Tell your neighbor about God's call for their life and invite them to come. That sounds Arminian. It sounds like the Bible. <laughs> Amen? And that's God's heart for us. Man, you've been chosen by God. That is incredible. And, and not just chosen to be on the team. You've been adopted. You've been brought into his family. Do you, do you understand even the process of adoption going through and picking and all those sorts of things? The cost that is associated with adoption today? One of the great crimes in our lifetime is the fact that there are families everywhere that would love to adopt a kid and bring a kid into their house, but they can't afford it because it's so expensive. And I can tell you, our family's in the process of looking for someone to adopt right now through the foster care program. And we get these updates and we read through bios. Is this kid going to fit into our family? Are we equipped to be able to care for him? It's a massive process to understand that God chose you to be adopted into your family, that you might be a joint heir part of the family, that he might give you all that is his, just like an adopted child has in a family today. That's incredible. <coughs> Just yesterday, I did a memorial service. We're going to be done here. Oh, we're late. I'm sorry. Just, just yesterday, I did a memorial service um, for a woman who passed away just a few weeks ago, and her two children are both adopted, both of them. And, and her son spoke and did sort of the eulogy yesterday at the memorial service, and he talked about the fact that at the time he was adopted many, many years ago, that there was a lot of stigma on that. In fact, at one point when he was in school, he was supposed to write a paper about his life and he wrote in the paper that he was adopted and the teacher failed him for it because she thought he made it up. You're not adopted, nobody adopts kids. Like that was the stigma that was on that. And in the memorial service, as he was talking about this yesterday, he said, we, we were never ashamed to be adopted because it meant they picked us. So let me encourage you guys. I don't care what debate there exists between Calvinism and Arminianism. I don't care about what people say, well, you know where that's going to lead, and all those kind of things. Don't you ever be ashamed of the fact that God picked you. Worship God because he picked you. That's the intent. Amen? We went really long. Let's stand and pray.
God, thank you. Thank you so much that you chose us. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. Thank you because we didn't deserve it at all. But we are so thankful, Lord, for this truth. Lord, I pray that you would just solidify in the hearts of everyone here, those who have put their faith in you, that they have been chosen by you, that they are the elect, that you have purposes for them, and that you are their father. And then, God, will you give us the same passion for those around us that we might carry that gospel to them as well? Lord, help us to worship at the reality that we have been chosen and adopted. And may that worship spill out in our lives by just having to share the gospel with people around us because we just can't help it. I pray, God, for our church that we would be different than those that get caught up and mired down by debates and these senseless jabberings, Lord. I pray instead that we might just worship you for the goodness that you are. May we waste no time debating things that don't matter when there are people out there today dying without you. And may we never cease to worship you for your grace and kindness to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Love you guys. Have a great, great week. Um, Beautiful day. You have been adopted. Share the gospel with somebody. God bless.